what's one thing, the low hanging fruit? Because we want people to build confidence in all this as well. Not say I'm a hot mess. I'm never going to fix all of this. It's way too much. What are the small wins that we can negotiate or they can write down to say, what can I do differently just tomorrow? Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time joining us, we just we don't want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know it's just such an honor you decided to spend your time to grow in your leadership and hopefully build some more expertise that you can take into your organization and become even more of a winner than you are now. So if you want to get a hold of our faculty, if you would love to pick their brain on, on a question that you might be wrestling with, maybe you have a, a topic or an, a leadership decision that you're really wrestling with and, and would love for us to cover that as a topic for our show, or you know of an individual who would make a great guest for our podcast reach out to us. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-E-P-U-I All right. Well, last week we sat down with the senior lecturers who specialize in organizational communication and executive coaching, Brenda Bailey-Hughes and Tatiana Kolovu, who we've started a conversation on how do we build influence within our leadership, where it starts with really getting into building a trust within your team, within the culture, and then using the influence as a leader to help steer and direct our team to a winning strategy. So if you have not already listened to part one, be sure to go back and listen because we are taking the foundational building blocks we've learned and we're going to start putting it into the how. How do we begin to implement this within our teams? How do we begin to implement this into our leadership? And look at some some examples, some real world examples, so we can really begin to put the pieces together. So Brenda, I would love for you to start off and, and kind of get us set up for what we're going to be talking about today. Thanks, Matt. And thanks for having us back on. This is great. Well, I think that today we're going to focus on a deep dive into trust building and uh, kind of flushing out what it looks like to, to build other people's perception or belief that we are to be trusted. So we want to remember that you might be perfectly trustworthy. You might be reliable and dependable and, and honorable and all of those things that define trust. But if someone doesn't believe it, it doesn't matter. So trustworthy is different than being trusted. And we want to really focus on what it takes to be trusted today. And Tatiana and I have worked through this thought that there are some of those cues that tell people I'm trustworthy that are kind of superficial, but they still matter. They still end up uh, affecting how people read you and, and how people decide whether I'm going to trust you or not. So in a perfect world, we wish we didn't have to talk about things like what do you wear and how many times do you say uh, 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 um during a, a presentation, but those things do end up mattering. So we do have to talk about them. We call them the 30 second credibility busters or boosters because in 30 seconds, they can either bust or boost your credibility with others. So we want to talk about that. But then we do realize that if you, if you come a little closer to who you really are, we start thinking about things like your day-to-day -day actions, the things you do in day in and day out 
when I have more than 30 seconds to get to know you, how do I prove to you then that I am trustworthy? And then if we really go deeply in, we might even start looking and thinking about what sorts of mindsets do you have about yourself that could set you up to be very trusted or that could sabotage your credibility in some cases. So, so we wanted to play around with those a little bit today. And, and we thought we would do that by sharing some specific examples of clients who we've coached on these different elements. And it's all framed again in this idea that within those sort of concentric circles of the external cues, the day-to-day -day behaviors and the mindsets, you've got to, you've got to be demonstrating both warmth and competency. Those are the two criteria that people use to decide, am I going to trust Matt Martella? Am I going to trust Tatiana Kolovu? Well, I am if I think you're warm, which means you care about me, you've, you're concerned about me, you have my back, you're warm, and you're an expert, you're competent, you can get the job done. You, you've got the talent to do it, competency, and you've got the willingness, the desire to do it. That's the warmth. So we've got to have both of those. So one of my uh, clients uh, lived in the West Coast and was just a genius in his field, absolutely renowned for his expertise, and had been targeted for a pretty significant promotion. And the one thing that was sort of holding him back and that his, um, his supervisor had asked me to work with him on in terms of coaching was that warmth factor. So nobody doubted that he was an expert, that he was competent, but his team said, but does he care about us? Does he have our best interest at heart? And so then we started working through, well, what could be those superficial cues that might be telling people that you don't really care about them as much? And so that was some, uh, some fun meetings where I just watched him interact with his team. And for example, one of the things that I noticed about him is that he had um, a very intense listening face. So you could imagine when he was listening to someone talk, he was, he was intensely listening, but it was with his brows furrowed and a, and a real frown on his face. Sometimes he would even like squint his eyes because he was thinking so hard about what they were saying. Um, and that was so intimidating. So his intent was, I'm just really listening to you, but the impact was you're scaring them to death. They think that you're disagreeing with them. So we practice things like relax the, your unfurrow or relax your brow, your eyebrows. Uh, make sure that, the, that your tongue is not pushed into the top of your mouth. Just You could do that right now, like pretend to drop your tongue out of the roof of your mouth. You'll feel your whole jawline will relax when you do it. Take a couple of deep breaths, but not exasperated breaths, because he would sometimes do the <sighs> sort of thing, and then that would intimidate people even more, and, and was certainly not a warmth cue, but just enough breathing that he could get his shoulders to relax. He could. Um, he, I had him practice in the mirror what we called his, his happy listening face. We practiced doing 20% smile, so not this full-on grin, but to compensate for what was this, this deep frown of listening. Instead, I wanted him to practice like a 20% smile. And then I just had him do that in the mirror over and over and over until his muscle memory was there so that he could recreate that facial expression in meetings when he needed it. So I realized all of those things felt superficial, but they started having this huge effect on how people were perceiving him in meetings. And it's all 
things that shouldn't matter again in the perfect world where he was only if he were only judged on what was in his heart what was in his head but it's more than that it's this package of of nonverbal cues that really do communicate warmth to people comparing the two you know warmth and this competency i to me as you were talking about i visualize it and correct me if i'm wrong but it's almost like on on like a a line chart or like a line graph where you know the more warm you are maybe does that does that do you more appear like if you're more naturally warm, do you appear less competent or if you're more competent, do you appear less warm? Like, do they live naturally like opposite of each other or we think of it more as a two by two grid where, you know, you've got one on the X axis and you've got one on the Y axis and your goal is to be high in both realizing though, that trust is contextual. So in some situations, uh, for example, this person really needed to ramp up his warmth and not worry so much about his credibility, which it was already built in from his years of excellent problem solving, his sort of legendary wisdom in his discipline. So it, it is contextual and it does matter on, to, to whom I'm speaking, whether I'm working on bumping up those warmth cues or those competency cues, but ideally they can live together. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, let's specifically get into the busters and the boosters. Like you said, this is something that may seem superficial. And I think for a lot of leaders, you know, especially leaders who want to have like an authentic approach, it might be, it might feel like it's cheating or it's just cheesy or it's, or it's not working. So let's talk about, you know, what is it that leaders need to do in order to first increase warmth in the busters or the boosters, you know? portion. Yeah. Well, the warmth, it's, it's, again, it's smiling appropriately. It's really good listening skills, but listening skills that you're projecting non-verbally, it's mirroring body language, unless you're trying to de-escalate a hostile situation. So if my conversational partner is really animated and using lots of gestures, when I respond, I need to use some gestures. If my conversational partner is relaxed and leaning back in her chair, then I want to take a relaxed posture. So there's some of that mirroring that shows the warmth factor. It says, I'm like you. And that's a way people gauge credibility is how, I mean, we, we try to pull back from that because we don't end up with diverse teams or diverse identities if we always just uh, focus on people who are like us. But there is that sort of natural tendency to like people who are like us. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that we're showing some of those warmth cues in that way, I think that's a, a powerful part of increasing our warmth. Matt, can I jump over? Because there's a lot of verbals, <clears throat> obviously, and nonverbals that relate to credibility and competence. But I have an example similar, not very similar to working uh, with who Brenda was working with, but I was also working with a person in the finance uh, world who was very competent, but didn't feel that competency. She was a little younger and every time she was presenting to the board of directors, she was so nervous. And someone approached her and said, you need to do some coaching because this is hurting us. This looks bad in front of the board. And maybe she hadn't had that much experience in the past. Maybe she uh, was kind of building this up to a catastrophe in her head, the what ifs. And I came into the working relationship with her uh, where she was literally sick to her stomach before the uh, quarterly meetings. And it didn't have to be that way. And we worked on a lot of, again, just like uh, Brenda's 
professional who she was working with was very knowledgeable, but the environment was intimidating to her. This was a board that was very opinionated and kind of had a long history of uh, debate. And in the annual calls that people coming in, the analysts were asking questions that specifically related to things that she would say. So we worked on a lot of even posture and stance and her part came towards the end of the meeting when she had to do some some speaking and she would sit there the whole time. You can imagine physiologically what happens to you as you're getting yourself worked up, your heart rate's going up, your, your, your body temperature is going up. So we strategically would send her to the bathroom within 15 minutes of her speaking. And literally I would have her do breathing exercises and big open stance, power poses and taking up a lot of space, kind of catching her breath, walking in just a few minutes, sitting down and starting. It's very similar if you've ever been to an athletic event where you're the competitor sitting and waiting for your turn to go. There's nothing worse. You want to be up and moving and getting air in your lungs and getting your head in the right place and really focusing. And if you're sitting and watching this, uh, she was getting herself so worked up. And then I flew there and worked with her in the boardroom. We actually did a little bit of a desensitization, put pictures of the board members at the chairs where they would be sitting. And, and coincidentally, I sat in the chair where she sat in the table because I asked where her hands were. She said she tended to sort of keep her hands by her side and she was quite petite. So you can imagine she looked even smaller. Imagine one of those Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movies with the table that's too big and her, she was a little lower. So we swiveled up a chair and set it up that she would be at the right position at the table. I'm telling you, she rocked it. And it, but it took some work and identifying those small things that you think make a difference. Sure. And it's interesting because, you know, when I even think of people who uh, they can, they're very knowledgeable, there's a lot of people who are very smart, but when you come across with extremely nervous and you show a lot of those, you mm -hmm. know, nervous tendencies, it almost kind of, it does hurt you in a way. Like you don't mm -hmm. come across as, as an expert, you know, versus someone who may not be uh, very well versed in a subject, but just because they start speaking confidently and boldly, yep. you're just, Hey, I believe him. Believe I him. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's right or not, but I believe him. And Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so talk about that because I feel like there's some really interesting things at play because on one end, you know, to kind of feel warm and stuff, it feels a little more cheesy or forced or feels like it's not part of you. But then on, on the competency side, you know, when you're trying to, you know, deep breath, step away, kind of get yourself, get yourself in a, in a different mindset, you're almost fighting like a, a more internal battle of these emotions and these nerves, you know, so, so talk about um, the competency of components, you know, what are some, some things that leaders can do? Cause I think the speaking is a great example for so many who get nervous, but what are things you can do to kind of have that first appearance of competency or I, I'm, I'm going to be confident in this situation. Yeah, I'll speak to some of those mindsets that could get in the way. And then I'm sure we have some examples of the day-to-day -day behaviors that mm -hmm. scream competency and, and, um, and expertise as well. But internally, it is identifying that imposter syndrome when it comes chasing after you. So that moment that in my mind, I think I don't belong here, I'm in trouble. So I, I do remember sitting, it was a Kelly committee, but it was all men besides me all tenured faculty. I wasn't tenured. It was all uh, people who were older than I am. 
the acronyms were flying like crazy. I didn't even know. It was like alphabet soup. I didn't even know what we were talking about. I left the meeting, Matt. I did not say one word in the entire meeting. And I was appalled at myself because in hindsight, even though I didn't know what they were talking about, that was a great perspective. We were talking about curriculum redesign and I was the only one that would have had a student's perspective. Not that I was a student, but I had the outsider's perspective. I didn't know this internal jargon and all the politics and the, the background stories. It would have been so refreshing for me to, even if all I contributed were questions, in hindsight, I realized how valuable those questions would have been, but I silenced myself because there was that moment inside where I said, I don't belong here. And boy, as soon as we hear that, we've got to beat that demon back because that will absolutely annihilate our credibility internally. And then that projects externally by things like we silence ourselves or we come across less competent than we are. I think closely related to that is this idea that my, my uniqueness is a liability rather than an asset. And I think Tatiana, could you speak a little bit to your fitness background and how that has played out in terms of your mindset uh, thought, here? Um, yeah. Thanks, Brenda. You know, my background is in, in a, uh, physical exercise, physiology, education background. And I am teaching in the business communication arena now, but for many years, I would hide a little bit of my interests in uh, training and competing or my background in health education. And then finally, one day I thought, actually, that's not a liability in a way that creates who my authentic self is. I'm more kinesthetic. I tend to be a little over-enthusiastic, but I don't want to um, hide that. That's that's really who I am. And in a way that brings and balances out a truer identity. We talked about authenticity last time. Uh, part of that mindset is really uh, acknowledging and, and uh, accepting who we are. And we did a great episode for all those who are listening, uh, specifically on the imposter syndrome with Carolyn Gorner. That is episode 121. So if you want to get more, definitely check that episode out and even uh, the things she's been teaching on LinkedIn Learning. Uh, it's a great resource. So as we get into you know more of this mindset and overcoming the mindset of being intentional, how as a leader, because not every leader has great coaches like you too. You know, everyone's got people that are around them or in teams, but what's that first step, you know, for uh, a lot of these organizational leaders who are just wanting to become more self-aware or self, um, you know, self-correcting when they want to be more warm? Like what are some practical things or where's the first place to start, I guess, to uh, identifying that within themselves? Well, absolutely. They've got to get external feedback. So we can, internal feedback is great when we know certain things about ourselves and we can acknowledge that, but without some external feedback, it's really hard. And unfortunately, the higher you climb up the ladder, the harder it is to get honest feedback. So the, 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 the less likely people are going to be to tell the boss, hey, you really have a scowly face when we're in meetings or, you know, you made this decision and we thought it was really a stupid decision. You know, you're just not going to hear that the higher you climb. So I think having sort of a board of directors that is willing to be uh, or, or uh, loving critics, people who will be honest with you, but have truly your best interest in, at heart. Uh, I think those are some critical ways to start the self-awareness journey. Yeah, and, and I may add, when, when do we work with executives, we use a lot of external tools 
that can provide some of that awareness anywhere from questionnaires and, 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 and specific tools and resources down to the actual camera. You know, mm-hmm. being able to capture a person in action gives us so much data that we can work with and the, the cameras don't lie. Well, and a lot of our external feedback comes from sort of 360, 360. formal and informal interviewing that we did. If I go back to another one of my clients who was working on warmth, I don't know why all mine need warmth, but um, it, <laughs> she had made a decision to um, shorten or decrease the number of meetings that the team was going to have. And when she made that, she made that decision, I didn't know it was coming, but then as I was interviewing some of her teammates, so now remember, she already had a warmth issue. They always thought, already thought she was cold, she was aloof, which in part is some gender issues playing out there, but part of it was she did present as very um, almost formal and cool, very cool in that, in an in aloof way, not in a, Ooh, you're so savvy. Cool. Um, so at any rate, so when she made this decision, I'm talking to her teammates about it or her, her direct reports about it. And I kept getting this feedback like, yeah, now she doesn't even want to have meetings with us. Now she doesn't even want to talk about us. By the way, this was someone who'd been criticized for not asking enough personal questions. Her team had told me, yeah, we, we have, sort of a, uh, an office wager, an office bet pool on when she will ask you a personal question because it was so seldom that she would say, how was your weekend? Or, hey, how are the kids? So they had sort of a running ticker board in the back office of, ooh, who got asked a personal question? You know, So just so that knowing that was a way for me then to coach her on, maybe you ought to think about asking more personal questions. That's one of the ways you can warm yourself up. But where was I going with the story? Oh, she... Um, had made this decision to decrease the number of meetings. The team interpreted this as she doesn't even want to talk to us in meetings now. When I asked her about the decision, she goes, oh my gosh, no. It's because I so deeply, deeply respect their time. I know how busy they are. I realized that some of the things we were handling in those meetings, we could handle asynchronously. I didn't want to waste their time. And I just simply asked, did you tell them that's why you canceled the meetings? Uh, no. Okay, let's tell them that because her intent was so honorable and it was so caring. It was so it was so much of those warmth characteristics we're looking for, but because she wasn't transparent about her motivation behind the decision, it was interpreted differently and had a very different impact than the intent that she meant. You know, uh, when leaders work uh, across borders in different cultures and are going and getting on a flight and trying to do business overseas. I do a lot of cross-cultural communication and uh, try to, to help them interpret that. I remember having a, a, a medical professional, a physician that was opening a clinic or, or collaborating with a clinic in a different country. And at the time uh, was trying to be influential across cultures. And it, it came out as a bad joke. I mean, they were literally speaking different languages because he was his intent was to be very task oriented, which is very typical of our low context kind of US culture, let's get things done. But the impact on the other end, a high context and very relationship focused culture on the other end, the impact was that here comes the American to push the agenda and shove it down our throats and we don't even know them yet. So these meetings, we keep going on for a long time. They were talking in circles and I remember how frustrated he was and he was not getting anywhere with this. And it was until we were able to separate all this and take the time and break bread and have the dinners and 
and get to know people and their history and where they're from and figure out where to sit in meetings and all this that, but so much of that was creating an impact that was negative. It, it would take him, surely it took him less time to create the initial relationship, but it wasn't going anywhere fast. So in the long run, it took longer to get to the final project that they wanted to accomplish. So for a lot of organizational leaders that are getting ready to get on the journey, wanting to make changes, obviously when you do something for so long or you're around the same people and the same team for so long, when you start making changes, people notice, how do you start the conversation with your team to let them know what's going to happen so that when you do start making these changes, people don't interpret it as like superficial or they're just, they're just doing this because maybe their boss said something and now they're, you know, having to do this, not because they want to do this. I think it in part depends on whether you're working on warmth or competency. So with someone who's trying to up their warmth cues and honesty and vulnerability and transparency are all part of building up your warmth. I think it's, it really is effective to simply say, I've recognized I have some gaps in my interpersonal skills. I'm consult. I'm working with a coach and I'm going to be trying out some new behaviors. I think that kind of vulnerability builds your warmth. If you're working on competency, that may not be your best play. Being transparent in a way, and it depends on, is it your smaller, closer circle to saying, hey, Matt, I'm not an expert in this. I need your help. Or can you catch me up? Sometimes that's a quicker jump in trust with a leader who says, you drive, please, because I'm not there yet. I need to learn. That's going to be definitely appreciated a lot more than you coming in pretending you know it all. But you've got to be able to be vulnerable, uh, even if it's a competency issue. And so when you have leaders who start inviting, like you said, these board members that want to look out for your best interest in mind and give you that loving feedback, as you begin to start these conversations or build your own team, if you maybe you don't report to a board, but you just have a mentor, you know, mm -hmm. who can look, look into you, what questions should you should people who want that change give to those looking in say hey this is what I want you to look for what things do people need to look for in order to instill change in in that individual you know in communication that we teach with with many of our courses uh, we always say if I say to you how do, how was my presentation or uh, what did you think? And you say, you did a good job. That does nothing for me. That gives me nothing to work with. But if I say to you, Matt, I'm working on being more concise and I'm really trying to slow down my pace of speaking, two very specific things. Can you make some note and give me specific examples of when I do or do not do that? That's giving you such much more hands-on stuff to think about and talk about that if I send you off for an assignment for that, saying, give me this feedback, you're much likely to give me better feedback. So it's asking the right questions, having the intention first to receive the feedback, but then asking really helpful questions to the person to give you the feedback that they can specifically give you that, that feedback. One of my favorite questions for clients to ask of their mentors or their, their feedback group is, what are my strengths? How do you see those play out? And when am I over-reliant or overplaying that strength? Mm -hmm. Because almost always we see that it is a strength over-relied on that becomes our weakness. So maybe I am very 
collaborative in my way of thinking. And that is, that is my strength, or I, I'm very good at seeing multiple perspectives. And that's certainly a strength until I over rely on it and become wishy-washy or refuse to take a stand when I should have taken a stand. So that very strength over leaned on overplayed is my weakness and an outside group an outsider is is probably able to help us see both the strength as when it's a strength and the strength when it has turned into our our um our albatross so finally as we begin to begin to wrap things up i want to know once once leaders start implementing a lot of these, uh, you know, being aware and having their feedback group or their mentors or there's people that are kind of speaking into their leadership to help them grow both professionally and even personally. When you look toward the future, you know, what what goals do you have for yourself or how do you grow or what maybe do you guys have yeah. incremental steps? You know, you have to set up your KPIs, right? I mean, for every person, it's different. What What is your your key performance indicator to knowing if you've built more trust. Is it to get more people to speak up at the next meeting? Is that what you're measuring? So you go from the first to the second to the third. We like to work with people when they have specific outcome related. It's very hard to coach someone that wants to become a better communicator. That's so vague. But if you have to speak at the next three board meetings or do three presentations, it's easier to measure. So I always try to say, how are we going to measure success and let's go based on those performance indicators. And for every leader, it's different. Maybe it's better nonverbals for listening, or maybe it's more concise writing in emails, or if it's more rapport building in the beginning of meetings or being more transparent. I just wanted to circle, but we talked about some of that communication anxiety at the beginning. And certainly there are, there are even KPIs associated with that. You know, I will be nauseated for only five minutes instead of the day before I will be able to get my idea, my key idea out, even if my typical approach is to lose all train of thought. I'm going to get at least my main idea out. So we, and so we, so we baby step sometimes as well, starting with where you start with where you are, what would be the next logical step of growth or what, what would look like improvement? And then what's the next and what's the next and go after it as Matt pointed out. Finally, last question. So if you got that individual who says, you know what, there's just too much work. I have way too much work. I am so imperfect. And there's, I don't even know where to begin. Like everything is, everything feels like it's wrong. Where do they start? Like, where's that first step that anyone can take? And that's going to be the road to better leadership. Listening to this podcast. (laughs) So small wins, I always say, let's break it down. What's one thing, the low hanging fruit, because we want people to build confidence in all this as well, not say I'm a hot mess. I'm never going to fix all of this. It's way too much. What are the small wins that we can negotiate or they can write down to say, what can I do differently just tomorrow? Behavior changes, behavior change. It doesn't have to be colossal and huge. So I just say, baby steps and small wins and have someone that you can be accountable to. Absolutely. Keep your focus on the behavior that you plan to change, not always the outcome. It's good to have those KPIs in mind so that you're, you're shooting for them, but it's the behavior that you can absolutely control. And so focus on that and have ways. I mark in my calendar, if I'm planning to become a better listener by talking less than than I used to, I write it in on important meetings so that that pops when the meeting 
announcement pops. So I have these visual reminders. I have clients put a certain number of coins in one pocket and every time they engage in that behavior, they get to move a coin to the other pocket and they're trying to get all 10 coins moved from right to left by the end of the day. So just those little steps that help you monitor your behavior so that you know you're on the right path. Again, Brenda Bailey-Hughes, Tatiana Kolovu, both Kelly Senior Lecturers specializing in organizational communication and executive coaching. Ladies, thank you so much for being our guest here on the ROI Podcast. This has been another episode of the ROI Podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.